Looking back at some of the other honors, there's the We Met Caddy Scholarship Fund. You must be very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Uh, that Caddy Fund was organized in 1949, and uh, it has been a source of great satisfaction to me. There's no story that could ever be told that is richer or sweeter than the story of Francis and Eddie. And may your lives Philip Welcome to Legacy, the We Met Fun podcast. On today's episode, we welcome on Ryan Carey, president and founder of Golden Age Golf Auctions and close partner and friend to the We Met Fun community. Golden Age Golf Auctions, or simply Golden Age as the shorthand name for those in and around the auction world, has established itself as the world's leading golf collectibles and memorabilia auction house. The company was founded in 2006, then known as Green Jacket Auctions and in the 17 years since has become the go-to marketplace for many of the most sought-after and valuable golf memorabilia to ever reach the public. Among some of the record-breaking items Ryan has helped source and auction are multiple Masters winner trophies, tournament-used items from some of the greatest golfers in history, and of course, the famous and record-setting sale, auctioning Tiger Woods irons from the Tiger Slam, often referred to as the greatest stretch of golf in history, which sold for $5.15 million in the summer of 2022. In this episode, we discuss some of his favorite memories from past auctions, as well as what to expect from the industry in the coming years. We also discuss how Ryan came to be an important figure in the WeMet community. Ryan first began his partnership with the WeMet Fund in 2017, when at the time, much of Francis WeMet's memorabilia sat in closets and safes in our office, and due to lack of space for display, were generally never seen by the public. These included various pieces from Francis WeMet, Eddie Lowry, and other exceptional items from golf history. Ryan's tireless work in helping auction these items proved to be an enormous success and not only helped create a new We Met endowment, but also placed these historical items throughout the world where the golfing public could see them. Many state and national golf associations, country clubs, and individual collectors across the globe won these items, and they are now the centerpiece of their collections. Ryan has remained a close partner of the We Met Fund and has focused on expanding the annual We Met Golf Auction, which this year will launch on April 27th. The We Met Auction has grown to be one of the largest in the country for golf rounds and experiences. And since he began focusing on this specific program, the funds raised from the auction have increased nearly 400%. In the six years that Ryan has been a partner of the We Met Fund, the projects he has helped manage have raised more than $1 million for need-based scholarships, something that Ryan is deeply proud of. With his passion for the fund and golf history, Ryan has helped keep the We Met legacy in the forefront by spreading the story of Francis and Eddie to new supporters each year. We thank Ryan for his time and his impact, and we hope you enjoy our conversation. Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time. This is an extremely busy time of year for you. Every year that I've known you, the first couple of weeks of spring leading up to the Masters, that's the busiest time of the year. So we appreciate you taking a few minutes to chat with us. And traditionally, we like to start at the beginning of the story. How did your golf experience come about? And we'll get to that. But given the time frame, you just launched your spring auction, your Masters Week auction. It's now live at goldenageauctions.com. It has anything from items now in excess of $100,000 all the way down to probably some items that haven't had a bid yet, $50 items, $60 items. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. I'm always shopping through and looking for something that I can get to add to my master's collection. So my question is, we're all lovers of golf. We're all huge fans of the master's. But what do you think it is about Augusta, about the master's, the love of the event that makes it so enormously popular with golf fans in general, but especially with your buyers? I think the fact that it goes back to the same course every year is huge and has that history because of that. When you have a rotation, it's great for variety, but you don't fall in love with the golf course. You don't know every single hole. 
you don't remember who had a shot uh, the year before or 10 years before. You can't share that with your father or grandfather for those memories and such. So I think the nostalgia aspect of just going back to the same location, remembering stuff. And then the Masters has also gotten very lucky with the winners. There are Jack in 86 and, and Arnold Palmer, which you know Arnold Palmer is remembered as one of the greatest golfers of all time because of his Masters triumph. But there's a lot of golfers that had records equal to him in terms of the other tournaments. So it's interesting that the Masters is king because of what happened in that Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, Jack Nicklaus era that when you and I were growing up, that's all we heard about was the Masters tournament and stuff. And then, of course, Tiger took the realm as one or five times as well. So going back to the same course and then just having this tremendous history. Yeah, right. When I watch the Masters with my kids, I think it's there's an element in the history because you're a history business based on history. And the honorary starters concept and the fact that over different decades, there's a story that you can tell about who are those two, who are those three guys that are on the tee and talking to my 12 and 14-year-old about the history. I think the honorary starters, I think that officially started, and I believe it was 1964 uh, with Jock Hutchinson and Fred McLeod. And that, that we're still doing that to this day. And they've even added some things where Lee Elders stops by and things like that, where I think that's a great tradition. And it also gets you pretty amped for that Thursday morning. And now Tom Watson and such. So yeah, such a cool tradition. And Augusta's done a lot of that stuff right, where they have traditions. And people like traditions. They like familiarity and everything. And, and that's what Augusta does well. I'm on the website right now. Like I said, goldenageauctions.com. It's so fun to look through these auctions and to see these amazing pieces. For example, you have the 1934 Masters program on there right now. Ryan, I think within 24 hours of you launching this auction, there were how many thousands of bids from how many thousands of bidders? So it's just such a cool way to spend Masters Week for us fans. Are you able to enjoy the days leading up to the end of the auction, which ends on Saturday of Masters Week? I tend to be busier leading up to launching an auction. So during an auction, I'm less busy than people realize because a lot of the hard work's already been done. And so now it's just people all around the globe on their computers bidding. That's actually the fun part. It's the fun part watching is the the eye of the hurricane where you're right in between the pre-auction and the post-auction madness. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. I'm just obsessed with just refreshing the website, seeing what's going on and everything. And so to be able to watch the Masters tournament and have that go on, there's a lot of people that I bet only check us out during the Masters because they just think of us when they're browsing the internet while on their phone while watching the Masters. We get a lot of that where you just get that casual golfer crowd that's just, they're more amped up for the Masters tournament than they are the other majors. Well, Ryan, I know the excitement of refreshing that auction to see who's involved and who's bidding and what people are most interested in from the auction that we work on together, the We Met Golf auction, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But like I said, we're excited to talk to you today and kind of discuss how you became connected with the We Met Fund, perhaps in the most unique way of anybody that I know or I've known in my six years here. Get into the expansion of Golden Age auctions over the last few decades and where you see the industry going. But before we get into all that, I'd love to also start with one of the questions we ask a lot of our guests, which is, I know you're not originally from the Northeast, so if you can, can you take us back to where you grew up and some of your first memories of golf? When do you remember first being introduced to the game? My grandfather was a very good golfer, and he was a left-handed golfer. My dad was not a very good golfer, but had right-handed clubs, like most people. And so as a kid growing up, I kind of had the mixed set of left-handed and right-handed. I was relatively ambidextrous, not to say that I was good at either one of them at golf. But I would honestly, if my shot called for an eight iron and it happened to be left-handed, I would hit a left-handed. And if it was a wedge and I had a right-handed one, I'd hit it right-handed. So that's how I learned the game of golf. To this day, I am a right-handed person that plays golf left-handed, which I regret every (laughs) single time I see a really cool 
golf club or Scotty Cameron or want to borrow somebody's clubs because I'm stuck in this left-handed world where there's just not a lot of opportunities for us with equipment. It's a little harder to borrow clubs, especially if the airline loses your luggage or something and you're showing up to a course left-handed. I was not a big golfer growing up. I did not play. I am definitely of the Tiger Woods generation. Whether I admit it or not at the time, Tiger Woods got everyone my age. Tiger won the Masters when I was a junior in high school. Man, we were excited about that. You were not golf fans. It was like when Lance Armstrong or Michael Phelps was was big. You were paying attention because of them, because of their greatness. And that's how it was with me. And that got me into golf. So I casually picked it up in college, but it was Tiger Woods. It was a Tiger Woods effect. Everyone my age was just wrapped up in it. That's how it all started for sure because of Tiger. I always love when I hear the opposite hand origin stories. I think you're in good company. I think Jordan Spieth and Phil Mickelson are both opposite handed golfers. It sounded like for you, it was equipment based. <laughs> I always love that. Now, when you were growing up, you're playing. Did you work in golf? Were you a caddy? Did you have any exposure to working in golf? Not at all. I wasn't around the game. My parents didn't belong anywhere. They didn't really play or anything like that. And then grew up in Tampa, Florida. So there wasn't a lot of caddy opportunities. And then a course called Old Memorial in Tampa opened up when I was in high school. And I remember all these kids that I went to school with started caddying there. Now they have a bona fide caddy program. But back then it was, hey, what local kids that have never been around the game before can carry some clubs around. And that's how it started. So I had some friends that would do it, but it was a foreign concept to me. And the course was nowhere near where my parents lived. So I was all jealous of these kids coming back with all this money in their pocket that they were caddying on the weekends. And it sounded like the coolest job of all time. I only knew of caddying from like TV, probably literally the movie Caddyshack. So no, it was a very foreign concept to me until I started to play better golf courses later on in my life, but then also just moving to the Northeast where caddying just has this great presence where just walking with Florida, it's cart ball. Getting to the Northeast, I still think a lot of my friends in Florida, they probably don't get it. They don't understand the nature of walking a golf course and how that is the better way to see the game. And then of course, caddying right along with that. Being from Florida, I would think you're more or less able to play outdoor sports, certainly year-round. Did you play other sports growing up? Yeah, I was a baseball player. My focus was all on baseball. And trust me, you can see it in a drive every once in a while. I still have a baseball swing. Florida has that competition. There's a really cool thing about, don't take this for granted being in the Northeast, that we're entering the springtime where you start texting your friends when you see that some random Wednesday, the weather's going to be nice or whatever, or you've got Saturday off and, oh, look, it's going to get into the 60s. You don't have that in Florida. If anything, you have the opposite. You're always watching out for bad weather. You're always worried about rain. You're always worried about being too hot. Can we get the earliest tea time? And you can take it for granted that you can play year-round. It's not necessarily negative that the Northeast, you can't play year-round. It does make you more excited about golf season. It does make you reach out to your friends more and everything. Whereas if you're in the warm weather states, all of a sudden, several weeks go by and you didn't think about playing. But up here in Massachusetts, if the weather's nice, you're going to think about playing. And I, and I love that aspect of being up here. You're so right. I played a few weeks ago on the one day that happened to get, I think, up to maybe 48, and we walked 18 holes, and we were thrilled about it. So you're, you're 100% <laughs> right about that. But skipping ahead just a little bit, after knowing you for now a few years, I remember I was fascinated to learn that you took that classic route of becoming an entrepreneur in the sports auction space after first graduating from law school and practicing law in Florida. So you had mentioned you had graduated law school from the University of Miami Law in 06. I believe you were a practicing attorney after that. How long did you practice law before deciding the auction world could be a full-time? The founding of Golden Age, I believe in 2006. So 
were you working this side gig for fun basically while you were being a full-time lawyer? I started the auction business when I was in law school and then got what I thought was my dream job. I was working at a big firm in Florida, presumably really liking it, enjoying it. And I had this cool little golf company on the side and I had to disclose it to my firm. And I was worried that they were going to be like, wait, you got like a separate job here or whatever. But you realize this was 06 to 10. This is pre-Facebook movie. That's when people started learning about entrepreneurs, basically. Honestly, my coworkers just thought I had some dumb little <laughs> website. And so I was worried that they would know that I'm sneaking off in the corner of my office to like take phone calls from customers and stuff. But honestly, nobody had any clue. They didn't know, even though I told them. I told them, but they didn't pay attention. So then fast forward to 2010, my fourth year as a lawyer, we were selling some of Tiger Woods' stuff at auction. Tiger had gone from a Titleist to Nike, and a Titleist executive was upset and gave us some stuff of Tiger's to sell. And we sold at auction, and Tiger was very upset by this. And Tiger talked some shit about us on a press conference at TPC Sawgrass, and it was the best thing that ever happened to us. It made us go viral before I think viral was a term. It was huge for us. TMZ wrote about us and everything. All publicity is good. Honestly, it's pretty much true, at least for a small company like us. And so when that happened, we had our first decent auction. We were making decent money. And it was that eye-opening, wait a minute, Tiger Woods knows who we are. I think we need to be working on this company a little more. I think this shouldn't just be my weekend side gig. Also, it's a hell of a lot more fun than practicing law. <laughs> so I'm sure I started to get annoyed by people at the office right about when Tiger Woods knew who I was. I tried to hang on to practicing law for a little bit, but that was Tiger Woods was the end of that, basically. Millions of people love playing golf. We all love playing golf. But where did your passion, maybe even obsession, this is golf history. When did that begin? I mean, you've devoted a great deal of your life to learning about tracking down some of the greatest pieces of golf history imaginable. When did the history piece begin for you? Were you always a history nut? That's a great question. I think that one of my favorite parts about the game of golf is it can be enjoyed in so many different ways. Some people are obsessed with watching golf and watching the PGA Tour. And they have every Thursday tournament on and watching live from and watching all that stuff. Other people don't consume it that way. They want to play with their friends. They want to play with their family members, but they don't care much about the PGA Tour or the drama along with it and live and all that stuff. And for me, a big component of it is that history, the collectibles, the artifacts. For some reason, I'm drawn to that. I think I'm a collector by nature, whether it's Michael Jordan basketball cards or whether it's golf historical relics. I just love that stuff. I love the actual artifacts of the game. I was also that Tiger Woods effect. I was getting into the game. And so now I'm looking around looking for a company that I wanted to exist. Where do I buy some cool stuff? Where do I find stuff? Where do I read about this stuff? And it didn't exist. This was Sotheby's, your Christie's, your big auction houses had gotten out of the game. And so while I'm trying to learn this history, there was no one my age doing this stuff. There was nothing on the internet. This was relatively early internet at the time. I guess that's why I started a company that was literally just what I wanted to exist on the internet. It was not some grand scheme to to that in 2023, this would actually be a business with uh, customers in like 58 different countries. That wasn't the goal. It was just to find cool golf stuff. That's all. That's amazing. So going back to those early auctions, say 07, 08, 09, maybe you say before Tiger Woods knew who you were in 2010. You had pointed it out that this is kind of before social media. How are you 
sharing the word, how do people find out who you are at that point? And how do you also get consigners to trust you to give you their stuff to sell? How people found out about us, Thomas, I have no <laughs> idea. I have no idea. I don't remember. I don't know why. Honestly, it didn't matter because if 20 people were paying attention, that was 20 people that liked the same stuff I did. It wasn't about making money. The one great thing I did about building a business was we never cut corners. We went very slow. We were just trying to find cool stuff. And then when we found enough cool stuff to put up for auction, we put it up for auction. There was never a, oh, we got to make more money or we got to have more auctions or whatever. No, we just grew it nice and slow by developing this community. It was not even a business really for several years because we were just developing this community of like-minded people. And so that's where it started from. So now we've got that goodwill, we've got that trust, we've got the brand recognition so that someone could learn about us today and then start bidding tens of thousands of dollars within a moment. But you never would have done that back then. Back then, it was a community. People knew us. Back then, it was a lot of email addresses and phone calls. It was a different time period, and we built it organically with the hardcore collectors first. And then now the more casual golf people are taking notice. So you talked about tens of people in the beginning and tens of thousands at this point, maybe more. Could there have been a one item that kind of took you to the, to the next level, the meteoric? Was there one item that said, this is a shift. We're now on the front pages. This is happening because of something. Absolutely. The first moment was the Tiger Woods stuff where we're selling some of his clubs. Those are the Tiger Slam irons that... Tiger Slam irons, right. Back then, we sold them for $57,000, <laughs> I believe. Those are the ones that sold recently for $5 million. So, <laughs> But that was a big deal. We sold them for fifty grand. But that's actually not my answer. It was unquestionably 2013. We sold the first Masters green jacket, the winner, Horton Smith. We sold his green jacket from his family wow. in September of 2013. And my life changed overnight, essentially. That was everything. It's funny, recently, I was going back and looking at some of our numbers, just some of our revenue and sales and stuff. And I don't think I quite realized how big of a shift our business occurred right then and there. So when that happened, they wrote about it in Sports Illustrated. It was on ESPN. I think like over 100 different periodicals around the country, 50 plus countries wrote about it around the world. I mean, it changed our lives. It, it changed the trajectory of our business for sure. We all of a sudden had more customers, bigger auctions. That was when people learned about us. Also, before, Thomas, you were asking about how does someone trust you to consign or whatever. Well, that jacket sold for like 682 grand. And that was back when that number was astronomical. That was millions of dollars in today's collectible dollars. When that sold, all of a sudden, we had that trust factor. We were the guys that sold the record one. So if you had a $50 item, you had a $5,000 item, of course you trusted us. Why would you think anything of it? So before that day, we were these guys on the internet selling golf stuff. How do you trust them? How do you know them? After that, we were the guys that sold the record green jacket and everybody trusts us and everyone wanted to work with us. That sale of that green jacket was certainly what brought your company to our attention a few years later, which, which we'll get into. But beforehand, you had just mentioned you're going from dozens of clients to now hundreds and possibly even thousands of clients who are consigning with you. Just for those of us who, this is a foreign world to us. This industry is not one that we've ever come close to working in. Quite literally, how does it work? You get possession of these items somehow, and then you keep them someplace. And like you've said, some of these items are worth hundreds of thousands, if not more, dollars. What's the process of making sure they're kept carefully and also the mailing process before and afterwards? Get into some of that, the ins and outs of the game. I like our auctions to be special events. 
It's not eBay where they're available 24-7. It's not weekly or monthly auctions or anything. It's special event auctions. So my job is to go out and curate these auctions. And I intentionally want $20 items, and I want tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of items. Those are the auctions I try to create, where it's literally something for everybody at all price points. And I'm a big believer in I want to satisfy the need for someone that doesn't have as much money, but wants to find a cool piece of golf collecting. But at the same time, that's also how collecting starts. Everyone starts with buying a $50 item, a $200 item, something from a tournament they went to, a master's tournament, or their favorite player. And so I like to start that. I spend a lot of time and effort on the success of the business is finding the good stuff, finding the items that are going to get headlines, get us free publicity. Free publicity is obviously huge from Golf Digest and Golf Magazine and all the various golf blogs and podcasts and everything. And that's what I love to do is find the cool items that are going to get people talking about it, basically. I curate those auctions where we'll have auctions anywhere from only a couple hundred items to a lot of them are more like several hundred items, even over a thousand lots in that auction. We physically take possession of all items. Thankfully, we're the only game in town for this type of stuff. Most of it is all incoming these days. I don't cold call people. I'm not trying to you know, find old players or anything to get stuff from. It's pretty much all word of mouth incoming. And then a lot of it is just going to secure them, whether that's me flying somewhere, whether they're shipping to us and everything. We've got that part down pretty well, where we are used to shipping very expensive things. I know that if I need to get an expensive Tiger Woods putter or expensive trophy to London or to Dubai or something like that, that we know the best way to do that and the best way to do it securely. Well, that word of mouth is certainly what brought us to meet and our businesses and organizations to work together. The story of how we came to know you is kind of unique, probably briefly worth sharing. It was in 2017, and we began to realize we had so much Francis We Met memorabilia, not just in this museum that we have here at office in Golf House, but down in our storage room, we had boxes and boxes filled, and they were kept carefully of trophies and medals and so many items that Francis had had throughout his life that just came to us because we are the Francis We Met Scholarship Fund. And through the recommendation of someone in the We Met community, we became aware of your company. And I still remember us all sitting in our office one summer day and called you up in 2017. It was Colin and me and our former executive director, Bob Donovan, who I'm sure you remember working with for many years. We made a date for you and your business partner at the time to come by our office to see the collection And the truth was, we really had no idea of the magnitude of what we had there and the golf history that was in our storage area. We certainly remember it, and we'll get into the impact that it's made, but what are your memories of that first day when you came to Norton, Massachusetts, and the weeks after that in working to discuss that collection? What I loved about it most is the most fun part of my job is the discovery element of it. It's the Indiana Jones stuff. It's the Holy Grail. It's the Arctic Covenant. Getting to find these we met artifacts, which you know I didn't know existed or were lost forever or whatever. And you guys, I still remember these little small little manila envelopes with gold medals inside them from various that stuff. What is this medal? What's this one? This has got the logo of the country club. Let's flip around the back and read it. What is this? And just some cool stuff like that. Finding golf clubs. And, Wait, could these have been we met? And what about this? That was the fun aspect there. That's my favorite part of my job. And the fact that you guys had it meant they were, to me at least, hiding in plain sight. If I remember correctly, the stuff that you guys have on display is still all on display. That's right. Yep. The stuff that we worked together with was just the stuff in storage. And that's something that's changed a lot in this industry, or at least the optics of this industry, where I feel like five or 10 years ago, people, when they saw someone, maybe a former golfer selling something, people would thought, oh, do they need money? Or are they selling it for this reason? Or they maybe looked at me as, oh, an auctioneer, he just wants to sell people stuff and make money. And now I think that narrative is evolving 
where there's a discovery aspect of it. There's a preserving aspect of it. It used to be, oh no, this golfer, it's too bad he has to sell his items. Whereas right now I'm talking to one of the greatest golfers of all time about selling his collection and it has nothing to do with money. That money's going to go to charity. He just has no use for storage lockers full of stuff. Let's get this out in the world. Let's have fans of his all around the world own the pieces of this. That's what's really changed. And that's what when I'm talking to a company like you guys, an organization or a former golfer, where, no, this is a huge positive impact. We're going to get these things in the hands of people all around New England, all around the world, all around our country. That aspect has changed a lot when people are understanding who these collectors are. I think before it was just seen as, can you make some money, but then where do the items go? And now people are realizing, oh, wait, no, this is, this is going into the right hands. It actually sounds like we were similar to many of your clients that can sign. When the board and Bob and I, we decided we were thoughtful and careful with those items. Just because it was Francis Wiemet's legacy. There weren't eyeballs on that stuff. And maybe it wasn't protected as much. So we wanted to do right by Francis. And at the same time, this does relate to us. We do have a mission. And that's to increase the scholarships for the hundreds of young people every single year. So Francis, his connection to the We Met Fund and something that he's most proud of, we were able to both maximize the exposure of Francis's legacy, preserve golf history, and with your help, created an endowment now worth over $600,000. And that's a tangible impact for young people working in golf. So I just want to ask, you know, after it was all said and done, and this is still a great, great display here at Golf House, but what does it mean to you when you know that your hard work during that project has now put these items down in New Jersey, across the country in people's private collections, across the country and the world in different clubhouses for people to see and enjoy, and providing tens and thousands of new scholarship dollars every single year, Ryan. That's pretty awesome. I always felt when you guys first approached me, when we first talked, I felt you really got it. I felt a lot of times you were worried about, do people understand why we're doing this, that our mission is different? Our mission is not to keep medals in a basement that people can't see, nor is to even set them up so people can see them. That's not your mission. It was different. I felt you really got that. And then I'm really glad that what we did with it was a big success. The fact that those trophies were able to generate money for these scholarships and then remain intact, and who knows what their next life is going to be, whether they're back on display somewhere in a few years, other ways to positively impact the We Met Fund. I think that's a pretty special outcome. And then Thomas, I mean, I remember me and you and Colin, we were going over at the end of one auction where we were looking at, oh, look, Brookline bought this, the USGA bought this, this club bought this and everything. And then a whole slew of members of various clubs all around New England, you could see the medal of we met playing in Woodland or whatever, and then you'll see like someone in that area bought it. Seeing what happened there was just a really cool way to recap and see these things were in a basement, and now they're going to be cherished for years to come and preserved for years to come as well. It was really cool the way the community rallied around that auction, especially just at here locally in Massachusetts. A lot of clubs really wanted their item for their club. You just pointed it out. A lot of members would come together and say, no, we need this on display in our clubhouse. We don't want this going to somebody else. So there's also a little bit of competitiveness there too, but it was cool that it was able to come back to those clubs. But this was also, I believe, Ryan, and help me out with the time, but around this time, 2017, 2018, 2019, there were also some changes at your company hand in hand with a full rebrand. I apologize if I'm a few years off there, but it became golden age golf auctions. 
And since, I don't know, 2017, it seems like it's been a rocket ship. Can you talk us through the meaning of what that new name is, the pride you felt in seeing the company expand so rapidly? For years, you know, our prior name was Green Jacket Auctions, and a certain organization in Georgia wanted that name for themselves. So we were able to work out a deal there. And our rebranding was huge for us. We were seen as before the Green Jacket guys, the Masters guys and everything. And what we sell is so much more than that. We wanted to be seen as selling stuff from all of golf history, not just Masters stuff, but also be able to move into the new age as well, with whether it's Tiger Woods and Jordan Spieth and these current players. So we didn't want to be pigeonholed into one particular area. I was very worried about the rebranding. It's a tough thing to do to pick a new name after you've been running with an old one. We've had a lot of success from there. So I think that it's all worked out, even though it was very tough to do. And then we got lucky. We rebranded and we were trying to increase our company, pushing this company to a new level. And then COVID really expanded our business. Alternative assets and collectibles, things like that, just skyrocketed during COVID for reasons that I don't know that I completely understand. We were at the right place at the right time. And granted, we'd been in business for years and setting in this path, but COVID really expanded our operations, expanded business. It made people more interested in nostalgia, in collectibles, things like that. And they're sitting around their house. They had more time. They're opening our emails at alarmingly high rate. They're playing more golf too, right? There was golf exploded at the same time. Yeah. I wonder if we might have benefited more than either other collectible areas because you're right. Golf just expanded. So it was a combination of collectibles, golf, all of that, more free time, more time in your house where you want your belongings, you want things. COVID really, really expanded our business, made us more into a real business. We were ready for it. We got lucky on the timing, but that was a big special moment. These, these last couple of years, it's been a difficult time for the world. And for some reason, collectibles got more popular. So with golf exploding, have you ever thought about expanding beyond the golf or do you like the growth and the lane that you're in and the niche that you have and one of the few players? I'm just a golfer through and through. So I did not want to expand beyond golf. There's a lot more we can do within golf for sure. Even what we do with helping you guys with your charity auction and such, there's more we can do within golf. I'd rather do more within golf. We've got this absolutely insane email list right now. Our mailing list has people in, I think it's 58, 59 different countries. Last time I counted, it is this who's who list of golfers and, and people that love the game, people that love the history of the game. So it's just the right kind of people, which allows us to, when we do decide to do something different, something new or a charity auction or whatever, that we have a high likelihood of success because of what a great following we have of people right now. And we've certainly benefited from that and from you helping to market that We Met Auction, which we'll chat about in a second. But before we do, I think we have to ask about the Tiger Slam irons from last year, Ryan. It was literally the talk of even our community for weeks throughout the summer. Everywhere we went, it felt like people were asking each other if they had seen the Tiger Slam irons for sale. And little did they know, oh yeah, that's, that's our partner. That's our friend, Ryan. He's the one who made that happen. It was kind of cool. Even we felt a little bit of pride for you in seeing how much that blew up. There was so much media coverage around that. It was amazing. Can you just tell that story very quickly? Can you walk us through how you came to know the owner of the clubs at that time? Was this a multi-year process leading up to that sale last year? Were you ever nervous to handle and transport them? Again, for those who don't know, they ended up selling for over $5.1 million last summer. I mean, that had to have been surreal. For better or worse, every first TM going beyond probably... <laughs> For the next decade, maybe the rest of my life, I'm going to be the one that sold those irons. So these are irons that 
listen, they were used by Tiger during the Tiger Slam, that 2000-2001 period. I had previously sold them in the year 2012, I believe it was, maybe 2011. And they sold for like $57,000 back then. I knew where they were. I've always wanted them back since that time. 2010-2011 was the U.S. in basically a recession coming out of the 08 crisis. It wasn't a very big time for collectibles. That's all changed in recent years. We see these headlines all the time of Michael Jordan jerseys, Mickey Mantle rookie cards selling for records amount. ESPN covers it. I knew they were valuable and I really wanted them back. I've been trying for the past four years to get them back from the owner. And it turns out I had the pitch wrong. I was telling him how much money he could make. And I thought they'd sell for $400,000, maybe even $500,000. It was a huge amount of money. And it turns out I had my pitch wrong. He didn't need that money. He's a very wealthy individual, very successful businessman, involved in some businesses you've heard of. When I did realize that, I changed my pitch to him. And I said, his name is Todd Brock. He put his name out there. And I said, Todd, the golf world needs to see these. They're just at your office right now. It's been time. It's been a decade. My customers want to see these. The golf world deserves to see these. And when I said that, he told me to fly down to Texas uh, where I met with him. I thought he'd have a lot of restrictions. I thought he'd want us guaranteed a certain amount. I thought he'd want it in advance. I thought he'd want all these things and, and have his lawyers look at paperwork and everything. So I go down there. This has been about four years of me unsuccessfully trying to get these clubs back. And we met in a conference room for maybe 15 minutes or so and just kind of talked about golf. And then at the end of us talking, he said, okay, they're yours. Take them. And that was about it. He literally just said, take them with you. So I brought them. I put them in a gun case. Texas, (laughs) of course, carrying around a gun case filled with Tiger Woods' irons. You cannot bring golf clubs on commercial airline flights in the cabin, no matter how (laughs) valuable they are or who used them, like Tiger Woods. Not even a single one. So, Did you learn that at the check-in counter? Where'd you learn that? I called every airline to see if someone would let me. And none of them would, which is absurd. You could bring a guitar on. My wife used to bring these big poster board presentation things way longer than a golf club. Not allowed to bring a single golf club on a commercial airline. So I had to check them, check them in luggage. Thankfully, they made it safely, but I got home with them. At the time, though, I thought they were worth like 400 grand. Still a lot of money, but I could check them. So you could have flown private, Ryan, if you knew what it was going to end up selling for. Correct, correct. Then a few weeks later, they sold for $5 million. And then the funny thing there is you have the exact same clubs. The clubs did not change. They're the exact same clubs that were a few weeks earlier. And now we're freaking out because how the hell do we move them anywhere? And we had to get them out of our office. Where do we hide these things? Where do we make sure nobody knows where they are? So it's just interesting where the clubs didn't change. They've always been the same. And all of a sudden, you had to freak out about what to do with them and how to transport them and everything. The transport of them is a funny process because we looked into every option. We looked into having them flown privately. We looked into doing everything. And at the end of the day, we had we basically had somebody drive across country with them hidden in the back of an SUV with a blanket over them, just hoping that nobody would know what they were. So we went with the safest option of just driving them. What an incredible story. And just as a follow-up, do you think that his 2019 Masters win was a huge part? Obviously, his legacy is what it is. But that win was a career-defining win. Do you think that even had that much increase to the value of those clubs going from what you thought was maybe a half a million dollars? I think the 2019 Masters win is the absolute most important of Tiger's career. Tiger has experienced the highs and the lows and everything. 
And people liked Tiger early in his career. They were big fans of Tiger. And then Tiger had really fallen out of favor. And we see that in collectibles. I think we've got a good insight when you look at collectibles because it's what people will actually spend their money on. It's what maybe they need their spouse's approval on, put in their house, to spend their hard-earned money on. Tiger had really fallen out of favor. And then we all love a good comeback, right? And so the comeback story of Tiger was he was already becoming this different level. Remember that tour championship? That was amazing. How fun that was with the whole crowd falling behind and then and tying Sneed's record to the 82 and stuff. But no, it was the 2019 Masters win. That brought Tiger back in the limelight. It was this amazing bookend to his career, legacy-defining moment. I think it made us fall in love with Tiger again, and it made everybody realize that his legacy was complete. Not unlike, I'm sure, Jack winning in 86 was as well, where there were Jack Nicholas fans before, but after the 86 Masters, everybody was a Jack Nicholas fan. That's what happened with Tiger in 2019. That absolutely influenced the price of these, which is just absolutely crazy to think that just one more major, but it was more than that. It was you were watching that with your kids or your dad, and Tiger was back. It was everything. The auction that we did with the memorabilia, the Francis We Met turning into Francis We Met Scholarship Fund Impact. Our relationship didn't end there. The partnership continued. So Thomas kept in touch. In 2019, we started to have discussions partnering on what we had somewhat in place, but very different scale, an annual golf round and experience auction, simply now called the We Met Auction. So that used to be, for anyone who's been to our banquet, that used to be 30 or so items on clipboards at a singular event over the course of 90 minutes. And now it's grown to be over 80 items. We have an auction platform through you, and we're offering top 100 courses all across the world. And last year, it raised $160,000 towards our need-based scholarship. That's quadruple from what it was raising before you walked through the door. So I know you don't focus on that. Why has that program and your participation with us to continue that? Why has that been so important to you? It's a great deal of time and energy seeing that grow, but the pride in that success and the We Met Fund. My wife is a physician and she always gets to help people with things. She's always fielding questions from friends, from colleagues. She's getting texts about, hey, what do I do if my kid's sick or whatever? My skill set does not lend well to helping people very often in life. I'm usually not the one that can help you with many things having a golf auction company. (laughs) So then when I was at your banquet and you guys have, you said, little clipboards of silent auction right down your bid type of thing, which everybody does, it was that, oh, wait a minute, we could move this online. It'd be just as easy to do this. And so I don't remember if that was my idea or Thomas's or, or yours, Colin, but it was a combination of, I think, the conversation starting about what if we did the same thing, but moved it online. And again, that's what I do best. I have that platform and I've got those customers. So I think the first year was probably simple as just moving what you did in an analog world to digital. And then we decided to realize, wait a minute, now that we're online, why are we limiting it to Massachusetts courses? Why are we limiting it to New England courses? What if I got a buddy in Chicago that's got a course and everything? And so you guys have developed such a great reputation and name in the industry. And I'm a big believer in, there's a lot of charities out there. People are asking for money for donations to charities and everything. But when you have a legit, we get to help people within golf, 
that is so special to someone that's a golfer to, yeah, that's where I want my money going. There's a lot of great charities. You can give it to you know whatever cancer society and, and heart organization and everything. They're all phenomenal. But wait a minute, let's keep some money within golf and let's use golf to do that. And so golf has this added advantage of raising money where you don't have to ask for a physical item. You don't even always necessarily have to ask for money. You can ask someone to host some like-minded people to their home course and have a great day with them. And those people will spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars for that opportunity. And so you can leverage connections. You can leverage people and connections to, hey, can you call up your friend at this top 100 course, to use an example, and see if he'll host three people and play golf with them one day. That allows us to raise money quite easily and allows us for that growth where we can raise money for the Fresh Studio Met Scholarship Fund. We're so grateful that you and Thomas put your heads together on that and, again, continue to still put so much effort into that each year. Ryan, first of all, you're being modest. It was 100% your idea, but I can at least know a good idea when I hear one, so we move forward with that one. But it's my favorite thing to work on each year. And one thing that you've pointed out, and you just made that point, the donors to this auction, again, it's grown to be nearly 100 items. I can't tell you how much I hear from them saying, I can't wait to do this again next year. I love doing this. I hosted three guys from Arizona. They were fantastic. And they actually invited me out to their course. And I know that's something that you generously donate around every year. And I know that's something you've told me over the years that you actually kind of enjoy doing. It doesn't feel like you're making a big donation. It feels like it's kind of fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know this. I facilitated a donation of Adios Golf Club down in Fort Lauderdale or that area. And that donor had the absolute most amazing time. When people are first donating for the first time, they're also reluctant. Wait, I got to host some strangers. How's this going to go? Who are these people or whatever? And no, the feedback is the exact opposite. That was one of the best rounds I had of the year. These are people that are choosing to donate money so that we met fund in order to play a great course. These are the definitional like-minded people that, of course, you're going to have fun with. This episode's coming out Master's Week, Master's Tuesday. So you have to check out your auction, which I'm sure by then will be an absolutely amazing thing to follow. So many cool items as always. So great work with that. To wrap up, our auction, the We Met auction, will be launching at the end of April. It'll be April 27th. And again, we hope to have a phenomenal selection and we hope that everybody listening will check it out and be involved and maybe make a bid or two. But I've now known you for six years and I know you to go on a lot of golf trips and play a lot of really cool courses. If there was something in an auction that you haven't had the chance to play, what would be the one thing that you would really bid up on to try to play? Is there a place anywhere in the world that you're still dying to play? Oh, man. I think a lot to me is not is not the course-based. I've been fortunate to play a lot of good courses around the world, and especially in our country, but it's more the experience. So anything that is special and unique, and that could be the people you are playing with. It could be paired with a celebrity. It could be playing the country club at Brookline, but when they're playing the championship routing, those unique moments where anybody can check a box and play a course, but when you add something special to that, and also just giving other people the opportunity. There's nothing that beats bringing a father or a son to a special course that means a lot to them or having that special guy's trip that you've been talking about for years to come. So I care way more about the experiences than checking another box. And that's what's so great about the people we've met when putting these auctions together, where people are literally bidding our auctions now to fly around the world with their friends and their family. And that's kind of the best part of the auction to me. 
Well said. Well, we can't thank you enough, Ryan, both for your time today, but also for over the last six years helping to raise over a million dollars for need-based scholarships. It's absolutely incredible. And we look forward to another great auction this year and continued work with you over the years. So thank you again for your work and the work of Golden Age. If there's any auction winners are listening, you guys got to invite Thomas. <laughs> Thomas doesn't play enough golf. Yeah, that's a great way to wrap up. I think that's a great idea, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Have a good one, guys.